Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Joni Spring, the Director of Outpatient Nursing and Clinic Operations for Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center is a large academic medical center, and Joni's responsibilities include all of the outpatient nursing operations. Joni has had over 30 years of experience as a nurse, most of that time as a nurse leader and nurse executive. In this podcast, we talk about Joni's passion for nursing, a field she always knew was going to be her life's work from the time she was a small child. I really enjoyed talking with Joni because she is so clearly an authentic leader. She is quite candid in the interview about her many successes, as well as some of her most difficult failures. Her story is well worth listening to. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And if you do enjoy this podcast, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening, and here is Joni Spring. Welcome to The Forge, Joni. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I'm looking forward to it, too. So you are a wildcat. I am a wildcat. Once a wildcat, always a wildcat. All right. (laughs) So you did both your Bachelor of Science in Nursing and your Master's of Science in Nursing with my neighbors downstairs in the Department of Nursing at UNH. What drew you to UNH to to initially pursue your BSN? Yep. So I grew up in New Hampshire. Okay. Um, And so I grew up in Ware, New Hampshire. Okay. Everyone laughs when I say that. So (laughs) so it's kind of between Concord and Manchester. But I grew up in Ware, okay. so I am a New Hampshire born and bred. Um, and I really never even thought about going outside of New Hampshire. Like I was just, it was always that's where I was going to go. I was accepted to St. A's, UNH. I think those were the two. And okay. I chose UNH because I felt like it was a little farther from home for me because St. A's is a little was a little too close to home. So um, there was never really a doubt that UNH was or that new that I stay in school for, yeah. in New Hampshire. Okay. And why, why nursing? What drew you to, to, what made you want to be a nurse at a young age? I don't even know how to answer that because ever since I was three, you yeah. know, ever since I was able to talk, this is what my, my dad tells me, I wanted to be a nurse. Okay. I had a lot of family members who were nurses, so it's not really a shocker. So um, about three of my aunts were nurses and I just... It was just always something, I think I think I was born wanting to be a nurse. Like it was just, I never even thought about a different career, not even in high school or even in my 30, you know, plus years of being a nurse, I've never questioned, like I am a nurse at my core. Like yeah. sometimes I feel like I'm a nurse before a mother or, you know, or a wife or whatever. And I'm not, but, you know, it, uh, nursing is just, it's, it's part of my core. It's who I am. What did that mean to you as a, when you, you know, as you went into the program? Um, well, what did, what did you, you know, imagine it would be? It was, I wanted to take care of people. I've always loved people. You know, I was the oldest child, so of four. So, you know, that could be part of, you know, you're, as an oldest child, you're kind of helping, you know, your siblings. And, um, but I always, I loved being with people, number one. And I loved taking care of people when they needed it. Yeah. And I don't know where that came from. It's really just, I feel like it was just my calling. 
And so in nursing school, it was, it was, I found nursing school very easy. Doesn't mean it wasn't challenging or it wasn't difficult, but it, it was my passion. So it never felt like hard work. Even nursing today. So it's a natural fit. Yeah. I mean, not that there weren't challenging parts of my career, some of which I'm sure we'll talk about, but even as a caregiver, as a nurse, I, I loved the most difficult patients or the patients who other nurses were like, no way, you know, I, you can, I need a break. I always felt like I had something to offer them. Okay. So you were from New Hampshire. You always knew you'd go to school in New Hampshire. And then as soon as you graduated, you left New Hampshire <laughs> and went to Philadelphia. I did. Uh, where, you were, where you worked at the Albert Einstein Medical Center. So what drew you down to Philly after that commitment to New Hampshire? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, um, you know, I'd grown up in a small town in New Hampshire. All my friends in high school. Now, my high school class was 30 people. So they were all marrying each other. Like as I was headed off to college, they were all getting married. And I'm like, oh, no way. Uh, you know, I got to get out of here. So I just remember thinking, all right, I'll go to college and at least I'll be kind of away from the townies is what I call them. And then when I, so a couple things, when I graduated, I thought this is really my time to try and get out of New Hampshire for a little while anyway, you know, explore the world. That's when you're supposed to be doing all that fun stuff. And then at the same time, when I graduated, Massachusetts had a hiring freeze. It was, I think it was proposition two and a half or something Mm -hmm. like that. So they weren't, they had, it's hard to imagine today, a hiring freeze in healthcare, but they did. They were not hiring nurses at all. So to get a job when I graduated at the time in 1984, when I graduated was tough. So I went to a job fair. I don't even know where the job fair was. It might've been at UNH. They often had job fairs. And I met a recruiter from Albert Einstein Medical Center who said, we'll put, we'll give you housing for six months. So right, I'm fresh out of college. My first, very first job, you know, stressed about money, right? So I, I'm like, okay, you're going to pay for my, you're going to give me a sign-on bonus. You're going to pay for my housing for six months, which is an interesting, but anyway, they did. And, and, and to boot, they're going to let me, they're going to hire me into a specialty that I wanted to work in. So I wanted to work in pediatrics and typically, you know, the industry standard is that, that we don't hire new grad nurses into specialty areas because of the the need for experience. And it isn't that it it isn't that it can't work or it doesn't work. It's just, that wasn't the glide path at the time. Yeah. The glide path at the time was get two years of med surge and then specialize. But they were willing to train me, to give me the education, and I could start right in pediatrics. Wow. So I'm like, I'm in. So that's how I ended up in Philly. And it was a great three years of my life. You know, yeah. it was yeah. our two years, three years. Had fun, met, you know, lived in, in Center City, Philly. Actually, I lived a little outside on the outskirts, but it was a great career it was a good career move for me. Yeah. I learned a lot. Big culture shock, though. Okay. So, you're, yeah, so coming from small town New Hampshire, Durham, UNH yeah. is in a small town. Right, All right. of a sudden, you're plunged into one of the bigger cities in yeah. the country. Yeah, yep. So, and in a big med center as well. Yeah. So I grew up in New Hampshire. I came from a nuclear, you know, actually, my family, my parents had divorced when I was young. But typically in New Hampshire, you have mother, father, children, you know, at that time divorce, mixed marriages, like that just wasn't what I grew up with. So I found myself in Center City, Philadelphia, taking care of a lot of children who were abused by their parents, which is really hard. 
And at that time, I worked in the intensive care unit, so some of those kids, like, lived there. So we were, like, their parents for six and nine. They were in the hospital for six, eight, nine months, a year. Um, so they became, like, our kids. You know, we yeah. be- became really close. The nurses became really close to the parents. Um, and this is where I learned how to, about boundaries, you know, patient, because I got, I was all in, you know, there. So if a baby died, for example, I would I would go to the funeral, and that was a culture shock because they were not like Catholic churches like I was raised. You know, it, they tended to be very different, just very different religions that you know that I wasn't exposed to. Um, you know, singing like Hallelujah and this is great, and I'm I'm thinking. You know, I, I just remember looking around going, where, what am I doing? It was just right. really, it took a toll on me. Yeah. Um, I had to go, I probably went to testify in court about four times in my first year there because I was in the middle of the father hit the mother. I got hit once because the boyfriend was trying to hit the father and I stepped this is in. This all in the ward? Yeah, in, oh, and I stepped in, in wow. to, to protect the mother and the kid and I got hit and it was just a completely different social structure, social environment that I was used to. And so what was the socioeconomic status of the average patient? Then so they were, you know, a poverty level, okay. um, multiple, you know, a mom with multiple fathers of children and, you know, custody, custody issues all over the place. Like I was not prepared for that. You know, that was just a culture shock for me. And, you know, so I find myself getting a little burnt out because I I was all in Uh, and I don't regret that, but it taught me a lesson. Tell me, tell me a little more about about boundaries. You're talking about boundaries. You said you were all in. So what did you learn from that and how did that affect your career going forward? So I, I remember in nursing school, one of my instructors saying, Joni, you care too much about your patients. Like, so this started, and you know, she, thing. well, and I, so I said that, <laughs> I said, you know, um, I said, I, that I'm in, that maybe I'm in the wrong field. I said, and I had a moment in my nursing school career where I was like, maybe I've chosen the wrong profession. Cause I remember saying to my instructor, if I can't care about my patients, then I don't want to do this. Then maybe I should be a social worker or maybe I should think about doing something else, but this is who I am. This is who I am, and I don't know another way to not be. So I'm going to keep on keeping on, and I'm going to keep on going being who I am. And thank you for your feedback is pretty much what I said to her. <laughs> Got it? Thank you. Appreciate it. Moving on. And then when I found myself in Philly, and I found myself connecting to the patients on a really, really personal level, and then it began to, that's when I was, then I thought back to what she said to me. And I just think that there is a place for some self-protection, right? There is some place for, you can demonstrate compassion. So I learned how to demonstrate compassion and caring without giving up part of myself. And I felt in some cases I was giving up part of myself. I had gone a little too deep with my emotional reserves, I guess, or my emotions. And, and it, and it did, it did kind of have to just kind of rethink for me, what is, how can I still be true to who I am? Cause I will never not be true to who I am and, but still be whole, you know, still be able to be compassionate for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. So I really just tried to put it into perspective in my own way. Like I didn't learn how to do it. I didn't follow any theory or model. I kind of just learned to self-regulate. I just learned how to 
when was enough. Yeah. You know, when... So when, you could keep going, keep giving. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was important to me, but I also didn't want to find myself a burnout nurse that I see, you know, that I had seen in my career. You know, I didn't want to be that nurse. Yeah. I didn't want to be that person who didn't have enough to give at home or to give to their kids or to give everywhere. And then the last thing I'll say is the place where I found I had that I had that I struggled with is so when I worked in Philly, I took care of pediatrics and pediatric intensive care. So I took care of really, really sick kids. Then when I moved back to New Hampshire, I worked in pediatrics again, and then I had started having my own kids. And once I started having my own kids, I found it, I couldn't do pediatrics. Like I had a different perspective. I looked at the world differently having had my own children. Yeah. So I have so much um, respect for pediatric nurses who stay the course and take care of those sick and challenging kids who have their own because for me that was emotionally I guess that was my 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 barrier you know that yeah. that was my guardrail what was me. it what was it about having your own kids because you, cause you, you look through you're looking through the eyes of a mother now which is you could argue that's a good thing because you could be compassionate and empathetic and demonstrate empathy with parents of children but for me it became I don't know I can't describe it it became too personal What's the difference between, you said you, you moved into pediatric intensive care. What's yeah. the difference between just the pediatric ward and pediatric intensive care? What's yeah. the difference in care level? Yep, yeah, it's definitely the acuity of the patient. So on the okay. pediatric unit, they're up, they're about, they're walking around, they're, you know, they're maybe recovering from surgery or or having, you know, recovering from an asthma attack or things like that. Children in the pediatric intensive, intensive care unit are much more sick. They can be on ventilators. They're just very, very ill. So they need more like one-to-one -one nursing care. Or on the floor, you know, you could have one-to-three or one-to-four. Uh, but in the, in the pediatric ICU, it was very intense. They were very, very ill. Sometimes they didn't make it. Sometimes yeah. they did. But it really is the level of their level of illness, the level of treatment that they need, and the level of nursing care that they need. Okay. So... You didn't, as you said, you didn't stay in Philly all that long. You were about three years. Yep. And yep. then you um, came back to New Hampshire. I so did. What brought you back to New Hampshire? So I started thinking that you know it's probably time to think about having you know settling down, having kids, and at that time, I wanted to be near my. I had a, a big family support here in New Hampshire, and I thought if I'm going to start, if I'm going to enter my having children. I hadn't met anyone yet, but if okay. I'm going to enter my phase of Having kids, I want my fam. I want to be near my family. Sure. I want my kids to have, to be part of my family's life, and I wanted them to be part of my kids' life. So it really was, um, and I gotta say, I missed my family. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. I mean, it was great to be. Three years was fun, and I met great friends that are still friends to this day. Um, but it was time for me to, to be back home. Okay, so you came back to New Hampshire and you started what was about a 28-year run at the Elliott Health System uh, in Manchester, where you worked your way up from being a staff nurse in the pediatric unit, as you mentioned, yep. all the way to being the chief nursing officer and vice president of patient care services. Yeah. So you said you, you came back for your family, but what drew you to the Elliott in particular? Yep. So, well, in Manchester, if you grew up in Manchester, there was the Elliott and CMC. Right. So you were either at Elliott, your family generally either went to the Elliott or went to CMC. 
Um, and my family was sort of the Elliot of the Elliot crowd. And I had done a lot of my clinicals there. So in nursing school, I'd done a lot of my clinical placements there. So I knew the hospital and I knew the, you know, some of the nursing staff. And it was important to me to live in the community, to work in the community that I lived in. So, you know, when I think about my identity as a nurse, when I talked about how that's central to who I am, like I wanted to work in my hospital. You know, I wanted okay. to work in the hospital that I associated with. So um, I think, though, I think I did apply to CMC and Elliott because, okay. you know, you never know. Right. Um, and I did... I did get. I did not get an offer from Catholic Medical Center, but I did get the offer from from the Elliott. So, but the Elliott was more. I was applying for pediatric positions, and Elliott had a bigger pediatric presence. Catholic Medical Center's pediatric unit was smaller, so that's probably why. Okay. I ended up at the so Elliott. I've done a couple of interviews with the Elliott as we were talking about yep. before we started. But for folks who are not familiar with the Elliott, can yep. you tell us just a little bit about? What's the Elliot? You know, yeah. Where is it? And and with respect to Manchester and so forth. Yep. So the Elliot is on the east side of the city. So the city is sort of split into east and west. So the Catholic Medical Center is on the west side. So kind of divided by the Merrimack River, um, which is pretty symbolic in in Manchester when we think about Elliot and CMC. There's there's still a longstanding rivalry between the two. So when I first started at the Elliott, I, I kind of want to add a little perspective. It was like a the Elliot, the hospital was it. Like it was the center. It was the hospital. Right. So when I first started there, no physician practices, no you know ambulatory medical centers, just the hospital. So you went and you worked at the hospital. Fast forward to 28 years later or 30 years later now, you know the hospital is just a small part of the system. And I remember. When that, ha like, I, I remember that transition from it's the Elliott Hospital and some physician clinics to now where the hospital is just a part of the system. It isn't the focal part. You know, we have, there's like 35 or 40 physician practices. There are three um, freestanding ambulatory medical care, medical centers with two, two urgent care centers. So now the hospital is a component of the health system and not sort of the the health system. And and I'd say probably around, I don't know, maybe year 15 or 20, that started to change. You know, we started as we began acquiring physician practices and building urgent care centers. All of a sudden it was a system and not just a hospital with a few practices. So that was an interesting transition to live through. Yeah, I bet. So one of the things I like to ask my clinician guests yeah. is about your clinical identity. So you've, you've talked a bit about, you know, yeah. you've always wanted to be a nurse. But when did you feel confident in your nursing identity? When, when did you feel confident saying, yep, I, I am a nurse? Yeah. Again, you know, I know we talked about this earlier, but I feel like I was always a confident, even as a student, yeah. a confident nurse. I do remember as a brand new nurse thinking, I can't wait till I have five years of experience. So I remember thinking like nurses who I met and worked with on the floors that had five years, I thought, oh my God, you know, I, I they're so, I was in awe of them, you know, just like so amazing that they're like five years, that's amazing. And then all of a sudden, one, one year I'm like, I've been a nurse for 15 years. Like before I knew it, I'm like, I'm like that nurse that, that I used to, that I used to admire, yeah. you know? And so, um, so I've always been 
confident and I always have considered myself a nurse, even okay. as a student. Okay. And this is where I believe one of the most important aspects of leadership is being passionate about what you do. And I, I, I have, I am passionate about nursing as passionate today, I believe, as I was when I started in my first year of nursing school, you know, wow. so. That's so, a long time to have that passion. Yeah, yeah. And I would, and I went, as I was hiring over the many years of leadership, that I would look for that. So I would rather hire a new grad with no experience who's passionate and caring than a nurse who has 10 years of experience but doesn't have that spark. Like I call it shining eyes. Like I look for nurses who have, who think they can conquer the world, who want to take care of patients, you know, who like that's their life's mission. And I hire one of those and teach because I can teach any skill, right? We could teach you to be an ER nurse, an ICU nurse, a NICU nurse, any kind of nurse. I can teach that. But what I can't teach is that compa- that passion. You either have it or you don't yeah. in, my, in yeah. my experience. So... Um, so that's what I hired for. I hire I hire for fit. So you came to the Elliott as a staff RN yep. in the pediatric unit and then moved on to orthopedics. And eventually you became the clinical nurse manager for the orthopedic unit, a 44-bed orthopedic women's health patient care unit. What was it like to make the transition from staff nurse to clinical nurse manager? Yep. So... Um, you know, that can be a difficult transition yeah. for for nurses. I've seen it go well, and I've seen it not go well. I would say for me that I was a well-respected colleague with the other nurses on the floor and outside of the floor. So with the nurses in the ER or, you know, it's always important to be friendly and nice to everyone. Um, but I, I was a, I was well-respected. I think that's number one. And as a staff nurse, I had always kind of offered to take on a little more. So, you know, learning, volunteering to want to learn to be in charge or volunteering to be on a committee or to take on projects. So even though I wasn't in a leadership position, I felt like early on I was demonstrating my desire to be part of leadership or to gain leadership exposure or experiences. So by the time I was ready to transition into my leadership role, Pretty much everyone knew that's what I wanted to do. You okay. know what I mean? But it was, but I took that time. And I think that's really important for leaders to, I believe nurses are leaders no matter what position they were in. So even though I was in a staff nurse position, I saw myself as a leader. And I, and I teach that a lot or, or coach and mentor people a lot that you don't have to be in a formal position to be a leader, that you can lead from wherever you are. And that is what I felt like I did. Yeah. And I think that helped me to be seen as a leader or a potential leader. Yeah. And plus, I would tell anyone that would listen that that was where I wanted to be. Okay. Uh, you know, I want to be the CNO <laughs> no someday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but first, I want Denise's job. So Denise was my first manager. Okay. Um, and she didn't leave at the right time. I was six months pregnant or seven months pregnant with my first child. And then she decided she was going to move on to an IT position. And I was like, you're not supposed to do this yet. Right. Like I didn't, I wasn't, <laughs> right. Well, I, w- I didn't want to even do it for another year, right. but sometimes opportunity doesn't happen when you're ready for it. So you took on your first supervisory role, formal supervisory role, seven months pregnant. Uh-huh. I did. <laughs> okay. I did. And I remember interviewing with the physician leader, the medical director of the unit. Okay. 
And I remember this conversation. I talk about this all the time. I remember when I was interviewing with him and, and he was, and I knew him. He was, I mean, I worked with him every day and he was so uncomfortable. And I remember saying, Dr. So-and-so, I'm like, what is wrong? Like, what is, are you not thinking that I can do this? Like, I was really worried because he was so hesitant with me and he wasn't normally that way. And he goes, well, all right. He goes, I'll tell you, it's bothering me that you're going to be out on maternity leave for three months after you take this job. So I was like, okay, this is one of those moments where, like, this is one of those crucial conversation moments that they, that I now know what it was, but I didn't know at the time. But I remember thinking, tread carefully here. And I said to him, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm disappointed to hear you say that as, as a woman, woman, you know, facing maternity leave, it's a little bit different than you as a, as a man, you don't have to make the same decision. You know, you, I know you have kids, he had two little kids. And so I want you to imagine what if this were you and what if you had to face the job opportunity that you wanted the most and you, you wanted and your the timing just isn't perfect. The timing just isn't right. Um, and we had a really good conversation about that. And I, what I could have said was, well, you can't, that can't be, that can't be a factor here. Like I could have pulled the HR card, right. And said, you know, that's, you can't say that, right. <laughs> right? You know, right. you can't like today, I think if he said that today, he'd be in some kind of, you know, trouble yeah. with HR. But I remember saying, that's not fair is really what I was trying to say to him is that's not fair. That's not fair. Um, so, but he, we ended up being excellent, great colleagues at the end of the day. And to this day, he's still a huge supporter of mine. We still stay in touch. But I just remember that conversation and how hard that was for me to be asked that, to be faced with, first of all, to be faced with, here's my opportunity. Like, this is my path. This is where I want to go. You've been and, telling everybody. For, yeah, yeah. For and it's not time. my, it's not the right time. Like, it wasn't the right time. And I even went and talked to other nurse managers who had had ch- children while they were working. So I'm like, how, how do you do this? Is it possible? How do I be, how do I do this and be successful? So, you know, I was aware. I get it. You know, I was aware that the timing wasn't right. But I just remember that conversation like I'll never forget it. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I answered the no, question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you, well you're, we're getting at it. Yeah. Um, uh, so you did, in fact, get hired. You, I you, did. Uh, and yep. so, what was that transition like? Actually, so going from colleague to now supervisor. Yep. In particular, you stayed in the same unit. I did. Right. Right. So yep. people who yesterday were your colleague, your, your buddies. Yep. Now yep. you're the boss. Yep. And I think for it was successful for me. Every moment wasn't successful, but it was successful because. I had the respect of most of the staff. There were a few staff who, you know, as a leader, you have to performance manage and, you know, that I had to manage performance and they'd say, oh, come on, Joni, you know me. And I'd say, I do know you. And that doesn't change the fact that this is an issue that we need to work on together. Like, how are we going to do this? I do know you. I like you. I think you're a fantastic nurse, but we have a problem, you know, but we have this problem that we can, let's try and solve together. Yeah. So, you know, so they did try, you know, and then they tried testing a little bit, you know, what can they get away with? And it's just so normal, you know, normal, you know, new leader behavior. It wasn't because it was me personally, it was a new leader. And so I always tried to kind of sort through that in my head, like, is this personal or is this, they would do this with any new leader kind of thing. Okay. So I think because I had the respect of the staff in the physicians, I had a ton, you know, the physicians were very supportive of me 
being in that role. So, you know, there were challenging times. There were times when I had to say no to the physicians and, yeah. you know, that was hard. You know, when I had to sort of kind of um, do the party line, you know, with budgets and, you know, that we can't just have everything we want. You know, so, the, you know, those are always difficult conversations when, you know, when physicians or staff want something and you have to be the one to say no. Yeah. Um, so, but that's never easy no matter what. You Talk know? about that relationship a little bit, even from back then, yeah. about the physician-nurse relationship on the ward. What What is the relationship yep. between the physicians and, and the nurses on the ward? Yep. So I'm going to answer that in two ways. I personally have never... I have always seen physicians as my colleague. I have always seen them as my equal. I have never, I respect them for their education and the career path that they chose. But in the same vein, they have, I want them to respect me for the career path that I've chosen. So I have never, I respect physicians incredibly. Like I am in awe of what they do, but I'm also in awe of what nurses do. Um, so I never felt personally that power, um, like power gradient, power or, gradient. Yeah. Um, but I, but I have seen it in culture. I have seen it and I don't like it. I usually try and address it if I see it happening. I think it definitely has changed over the many years that I've been a nurse where today I feel like there's much more emphasis on collegial teamwork interprofessional relationships interprofessional teams than, than when I first started out in nursing. Yeah. But they, but there, um, I have always enjoyed the respect of physicians and I believe that's because I respect them. So I never would I ever be disrespectful to a physician. I wouldn't. And, but I expect that same in return. And that's, I think, you know, that's been a good part of my career as a nurse, as, as a nurse leader. And sometimes physicians, sometimes they, it feels like they don't deserve that level of respect, but I won't do that to myself. Right. You know, I won't, I won't do that. I will have difficult conversations yeah. in a, in a room with a closed door. Yeah. I will address issues. I learned a long time ago that if I had this one physician who was probably the most challenging physician I've ever dealt with, and he was a bully big time. And he had, he was really tight with the CEO. So it was hard. That was a challenging situation, but we worked it out. And he and I, you know, still have a collegial relationship. But it was, I would say, a little rockier road than I had experienced with other physicians. But he taught me about myself and really made me think about, all right, what do I do when a physician is, trying to create that power gradient yeah. and I remember talking to my my boyfriend or my partner and he'd say you know what Joni you have to match the level of intensity so you don't lead with that we have to match that level of intensity so if somebody comes at you with you know high intensity you know you have to at least match that because you need to be seen as equals yeah. so anyway it was just a an interesting lesson yeah. that I learned so for a, for a, I teach primarily undergrad administrate future administrators yeah. so help me help me explain to them what are the roles of a physician yeah. on the ward what is the role how do the nurse and the physician interact 
on the ward. On, so for today. Hospitals. Today. Yeah, sure, today. In, in today's yeah. healthcare environment. Yeah. Definitely, you know, peers, colleagues. Yeah. So a physician's role is really more, so they see the patient for a moment, moments in time, not a moment, but, you know, they come in, they round, they see the patient, and they're generally there for a period of time during a day. But their job, you know, they're not their job, that's the bad word, their role is, you know, assessment and diagnosis and treatment, you know, so that's their, what they're, what they do. And then a nurse, so I, this is how, this is, I'm going to give you my elevator speech okay. about what nurses do. And I, I always tell nurses and I would tell any other profession, have an elevator speech that you can tell someone in three minutes what it is that you do. Because I, I think I, that's important. And nurses, I think, have an opportunity, or not, not an opportunity, an obligation to proudly and clearly say, this is what we do. So this is just, this is me. This is no yeah. theorist, no nursing theorist. This is the world That's according to Joni. Um, I believe that nurses are, are we, we are, the art of nursing, what we do is about being and knowing. So being is being present. So we're the ones, on the inpatient side anyway, we're the ones who are there 24-7 with the patient. So we're, we're with them. It's our presence. We're, we're with them. Patients tell us their stories. You would be amazed at what patients tell nurses. I mean, it's just, it's that relationship that you create with a patient. You create a safe space and a place where they can trust you. And I'm just amazed at what nurses will, t that patients will tell nurses that they won't tell a physician. Right. And I think, and I believe that's because of the time we spend with them developing those relationships. Um, you know, and as you know, the Gallup, the Gallup poll lists nurses is the number one trusted profession for every year for the last 10 years, except for 2011 when <laughs> those firefighters. So, which totally right. get, um, so being, so that's the first part, is being and learning their stories and understanding their world. So understanding where they live and what they're, what they're going home when, or what they're, what they're dealing with in their life. And then the knowing part. So the knowing part is where our knowledge. So what we know about science and medicine and healthcare. So that's where we kind of marry the two. We take what the science of what we know, we marry it with what we know about the patient. And that's, in my opinion, where the art of nursing is, is, is assimilating, putting it all together. Yeah. And then every, every discipline has their thing that they do with the patient. So therapy comes in and physical therapy does the physical therapy piece. And occupational therapy comes in and does their piece. And respiratory therapy comes in and does their piece. And the doctor comes in and does their piece. And maybe a case manager or a social worker. But the nurse is the one that ties it all together, the kind of completes the story, kind of puts it all together and helps. I think her her or his contribution to the team is integrating and coordinating all those different pieces and making sure that everything is taken care of. So that's the, it's, and that's not always easy and it's not always, you I know, not. yeah, but that's, that's what I see as the role of nursing nice. in the world according to Joni. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly why we're here. Yeah, we want to yeah. get the world according to Joni today. So 
in the world according to Joni, <laughs> um, you were uh, you went through a series of of promotions over the next seven years or so. You went from being um, clinical nurse manager to clinical nurse supervisor. Uh, to registered nurse clinical leader to eventually director of emergency services. So I want to kind yep. of fast forward through those roles. But um, the way I read that is the first two roles were clearly nursing roles. Yes. The director of emergency services, was that also a nursing role? Or is that, um, are you transitioning into kind of a mixed role? Right. So that's, that was my first sort of transition into really broadening my scope. So in addition to the nursing, you know, or the emergency room, um, I took on um, leadership for a post-secondary um, school. So we had an EMT school. So we had a school where we taught um, paramedics. So EMT, EMT basic, intermediate, and paramedics. And so that was um, so incredibly uh, rewarding to learn about that field because I was a nurse, right? Nurse, 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 love sure. nursing. Right. But that kind of exposed me to a different profession and learning to advocate for non-nurses. You know, so that was sort of my first foray into, you know, you can be an advocate and as a leader, you can advocate and, and support and lead anyone. But that was sort of my first foray outside of the nursing field. Okay. Um, and then I also um, was involved in building and staffing and overseeing the urgent care centers. So okay. they were, you know, I oversaw the nursing part of them and the and the operations. Um, but again, it was still, again, expanding my scope. So started in the hospital, you know, and now all of a sudden beginning to broaden my scope to ambulatory and outpatient and um, EMT training. So during this period that you were working in uh, EMS, they yep. were starting, uh, the Elliot was starting to build uh, yes. Urgent care yep. centers outside of the hospital? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, you know, then you start learning about construction and working with contractors and um, and architects. And, you know, so it was a great experience for me. Who did you report to in that role? How, um, so I still reported to the chief nursing officer. Okay. Actually, I'm trying to think. Gosh, there may have been a level in between. There may have been a you know, a senior director or something, but generally always reported up through the chief nursing officer. Okay. How would you say your leadership evolved during that time? So you're now taking on other types of clinicians and, and providers under your um, uh, supervision. Yeah. You are starting to look at, you know, outpatient mm -hmm. and other, and then also the whole EMS school. How did your leadership evolve? So I would say in those years, the thing that I learned the most about um, was emotional intelligence and um, situational awareness and really learning because then I began to have more exposure to senior leaders outside of nursing. So even though I reported through to nursing, I had a lot of exposure to you know, the VP of facilities and the chief operating officer and the chief financial officer. So even though I wasn't at the CNO level, my my past began, you know, my, my scope began to broaden. And I learned, I learned how to self-regulate my emotions a little more because I tended to be very passionate about what I, what I do in my work and nursing. And I had to learn sometimes passion, what I think is passionate is coming across to someone else as being aggressive or assertive or aggressive. Yeah. And I remember, you know, the first time I, somebody had a 
diff- a crucial conversation with me um, and talked with me about how I was being perceived, I was devastated. I was like, but I'm just advocating for, you know, you know, and they're like, I know, but, you know, it, it's not coming across that way. So I kind of got sent to organizational development school okay. <laughs> uh, in, in our institution. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and I actually um, learned a lot about um, impact versus intent. So the, per- the organizational development person still at the Elliott, but she taught me uh, this whole concept of intent versus impact. So she said, you know, what I learned was that I was intending to come across as, you know, passionate and caring and advocating for my staff, but it was coming across at, so the impact I was having was that nursing was more important than respiratory therapy or whoever, so that somehow I was not being perceived as a team player. I was being perceived as nursing, 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 but that's what I knew. Um, So I, over the course of two years, identified about three people in the organization who I trusted, who I trusted would tell me the truth, who I trusted would say, tell me what I didn't want to hear and what I did want to hear. And after every meeting, or maybe not every meeting, but, you know, after particularly challenging meetings, I would go to them and say, all right, how did it go? Like, how did I come across, you know? And so at the beginning, you know, the, the, the feedback was probably, you know, not as great. Um, but that's where I really learned how to self how to regulate my emotions, how to wait, not be the first. So I would always be the first one to, to speak up in a meeting, okay. right? I would be the one who would say what everyone else was thinking, but nobody else wanted to say. Right. So then I found myself in everyone's offices, you know, in the CNO's office or here. Like, Joni, you know, are you okay? I hate it when the people start a meeting out like that. Like, you know, that's not good when they ask you if you're okay, because it means they don't think you are. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so, but that in those years, I think, is when I learned a lot about how to read a room and how to read, um, you know, how to read how somebody's responding to you. How is someone, and, and now I'm really good at that, yeah. but I wasn't so good at that then. Okay. And I and I would say those are probably the leadership lessons that I learned the most in those years because it got me out of my nursing comfort zone yeah. and learning really how do you work interprofessionally and how do you work collaboratively and how do you respect the contributions of everyone on the team. And it isn't all about nursing. It doesn't mean that my job isn't to advocate for nursing, but I had to think about sometimes your, your agenda doesn't get doesn't rise to the top. So I was always in nursing accustomed to nursing's agenda rises to the top. And I really kind of had to learn there were times when I had to pull back at yeah. times when understanding the situation at hand, you know, there, I've learned. So over those years, I've learned when it's time to advance something as an issue or as a proposal or an initiative and when it's not. So I would say those are probably the most important things that I learned in those years. And you were moving into a roles where you weren't just concerned about nursing right, anymore. Right, right. So you had right. to kind of expand out yeah. beyond that. So that was a learning, that was learning for me, yeah. you know, that I, and again, some of this learning, I don't think you can, you, you have to live, you know what I mean? You have to live and experience through tough conversations and through failure, like, you know, through tr- starting and stopping and, you know, I'm a fan of young leaders. I think young leaders are our are, are future, you know, but, you know, and I'm a little bit type A. So 
it's hard for me to sometimes say, you know what, you know, slow your roll a little, you know, I think you might need to just, uh, you know, just get some experience under your belt first. And I would hate it if someone said that to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were ready. I was. <laughs> <laughs> so during this time, you also moved from being a first-line supervisor to being a manager. So, and by that, I mean you're managing supervisors yep. or even supervisors of supervisors. So, right. so you're now, you're several levels potentially removed mm -hmm. from the front-line people yes. who you were ultimately supervising. Yep. What was that transition like for you? I'd say that it was it was okay. I did struggle at the beginning with letting go. So because I thought if everyone just did things my way and, you know, this was my leadership style and it worked for me. And so why wouldn't you want to do that? You should just be like right, Tony. Exactly. So I had to learn, you know, that there are different management styles and that so I, I struggled with letting go, I would say is is one thing and even even when i became a manager it, on my orthopedic unit i remember the nurses saying get out of the nurse's station and get into your office you know they're like we're good we got this you need to you need to be doing different things like this is from my staff you know right, from right. my staff yeah. but they're like you got to let go of this stuff we got it trust us and so i think that was a lesson that i learned is i have to trust you have to trust the people that you work with and and they're gonna make mistakes and that's okay, you know, but I, it took me a little while to, to learn to do that. It, does, it, didn't, it doesn't just poof happen, you know, it took me, um, you know, and I had some managers who felt comfortable giving me that feedback and they would say to me, I got this. Or they'd say, do you not trust me to do this? Like, you know, so we had some, you know, some, not difficult conversations, but some honest conversations yeah. about, you know, I'm like, oh my God, they don't think I trust them. I can't do that. You know what I mean? So it kind of really kind of learned how to support without directing. Right. And that was, that was, uh, again, just takes time and it takes surrounding yourself with people who you know will be honest with you. That's like, that's a, an, also sort of a nugget is surrounding yourself with people who, will say the difficult things and the good things. Yeah. And then you got to be okay moving on. Like you got to be able to disagree. You got to be able to work through something and then let it go, you know, and then kind of move on to the next thing. So in 2007, you became the director of patient care services. What was this role and, and where did it fit in the hospital structure? So the director of patient care services is sort of a catch-all um, title. It ended up being... Um, and then you're, so we had two directors of patient care services and pretty much we just split the hospital into two. So um, you, I'm at, at one point I had these three service lines and then another time I had these three, kind of depended on who was in what role, what the skill set was. Yeah. So it ended up being a generic um, leadership title for you're going to oversee one or two or three different service lines. Can you give me an example of a service line? Yep. So maternal child health. Okay. The operating room or surgical services, okay. um, med surge services, critical care services. So those are probably the four most common ones. Okay. Um, and that was where I learned that I could lead and manage any service line, whether I had the clinical expertise or not. So I remember the first, I remember the moment when they said, we want you to take over surgical services because someone was leaving. I'm like, Surgical services. I don't never even been in the operating room. So you learn how to get work done through others. You learn how to rely on the clinical expertise of the people 
in those areas. And your job is to, as a leader, provide resources, remove obstacles, be a coach and mentor. So it, it kind of helped me to develop my more higher level, what I call higher level leadership, because I wasn't the clinical expert, right. not at all was I the clinical expert. Then same thing happened when they said, can you take over labor and delivery and maternity in the NICU? And I'm like, okay, so I have pediatric experience. So, you know, but labor and delivery, like I was an ER nurse and we couldn't, we were like, we could take care of gunshot wounds and traumas and strokes, but don't give me a mom having a baby, <laughs> you know, which is like the most natural <laughs> right, thing on the planet, right. right? But we were like, oh my God, <laughs> get down here. We're coming up. Um, so I wasn't the clinical expert in those areas. And yeah. so just having to learn how to, how to pull together your team and how so, to respect and value their contributions and knowing you don't have to always be the clinical expert. I guess that was one of the lessons that I learned yeah. during those years. Yeah, that, I mean, I wanted to ask you about that because inevitably as you move up, whether you're right. in the nursing field or, or administrative, you're going to move into a field where you are not an expert. Yeah, right? yeah. So the key, the keys that you saw, see for that yeah. kind of as you move into it is... Just relying on your people. Yeah, but I do but think you... you have to have a little bit of inquisitive knowledge. Like okay. you have to understand some of, of it. Like when yeah. I took the Norris Cotton Cancer Center role here, I didn't have any oncology experience um, clinically. I had some oversight, um, but in my in, at the Elliott, but but I, I I made a commitment to learning the basics of oncology so that when I was in meetings and they were using terminology, I had to know, you know, I had to have some level of knowledge about what we were talking about, they were talking about, because then the, I'm not going to be respected. They're not going to respect me. They might think I could lead anything, but if I can't talk with them about what the issues are, that's a problem. So there is a little bit of, although I'm never going to be an oncology clinical expert, I have to. I had to make a commitment to learning about what's a cog. And like, I remember being in my first meeting, and I'm like, you know, what is a cog? What's well, a clinical oncology group? So it's okay. like breast cancer, GI cancer, skin cancer, whatever. And I'm like, okay, I yeah. got that. Yeah. But you know, so it's just kind of learning. You have to make a commitment. They, I wanted them, the cancer center docs and leadership, to know that even though I'm not an oncology nurse and I'm not ever going to be an oncology nurse. That I, I respect their profession. I respect their specialty enough to learn a little bit about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that, that was important to me in all of these is to learn. And I would say you have to be humble. So you, you know, humility is another when we get to the leadership. I think humility is a really, really important leadership quality yeah. and leadership trait. And I would say to them, I don't know anything about this. So you got to help me out here. And that's why I'd say to, you know, to my colleagues or nurses, like, Give me like the Cliff Notes version about uh, whatever it is we're talking about. So, so that was how I kind of got through, or led through managing areas that I wasn't the clinical expert in. So you did that role through 2011, yep. and then in 2011 you became the chief nursing officer and vice president for patient care services, a role you held until 2015 when you left the Elliott to come here to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Yep. So what is the role of the chief nurse, nursing officer? Yep. Uh, and kind of what are the responsibilities and duties typically associated with that yep. role in general? And then in, were there anything specific about it at, at the Elliott? Sure. So the chief nursing officer is... Uh, you know, the highest level nurse in a system. So they're 
the kind of the buck stops there, right? There, as a CN, as a chief nursing officer, you're responsible for um, practice in your institution. You are the you're responsible for strategy. So, so strategy, practice, education. You know, so you're kind of you're it. You're responsible for all of nursing. And then I would say that. I was the nurse at the table. So I was the nurse, you know, who I sat on the board of, of trustees. So I was there representing nursing and patient safety and patient quality. I was the nurse with my colleagues. So there was a chief medical officer, uh, chief nursing officer, chief operating officer for operations. And then every organization has different levels, but typically the standard roles are, you know, in addition to those chief financial officer, chief of planning and marketing, like Susanna. So my role as a colleague is to obviously represent nursing at the table and and the yeah. patient. So I always felt like my responsibility was to advocate for the patient at the table. Now you'd think that everybody would be advocating for the patient because we all work hope. in a hospital, right. yeah. um, but you know people. That's not their thing. That's not their specialty. So the finance person, yeah. you know, if you have a good seat. CFO, which I we did, and I had a fantastic CFO who did understand clinical operations. And you know, if he didn't, my job would be to help him understand this is what we this is what nursing is about. So you're kind of helping people understand what nursing is, what we need in order to be successful. Um, same thing for the patients, advocating for pins. Um, and a lot of it is being the point person. So the point person for everything. And then you delegate that out to your team. And I would say that the CNO role is the same across the country as it is at the Elliott. You okay. know, that it's just being that responsible figurehead. But you're also responsible for growing and coaching and mentoring your team and, and all of that. Yeah. What surprised you about that role? So that, I'm, I'm guessing that was kind of, you always had, when you said, I did, you always yes. had in your mind, yeah, you know, yeah. that's where I'm going. Yeah. Um, I know. think. Um, what surprised you when you finally put on the hat and sat in the chair? I was so oh, excited. Sure. You know, I think I was just like, at first I was like, this is so cool. And then I think, you know, there are always challenges to senior positions like that. And just kind of negotiate. I guess what surprised me the most was the, that's really where you begin to see the politics in the organization. Okay. You know, the after the meeting meetings and the um, outside conversations or what people don't say in the meeting, but then they're going to say outside of the meeting. And I guess that's the thing that surprised me the most because I was, I'm an optimist from, you know, from my core. Yeah. And, and you don't want to believe that things happen for political reasons and they do so yeah. i think that was probably my most uh the lesson that i that i was the most disappointed in i guess yeah. um, but you know it is what it is you yeah. kind of got to learn how to navigate through political situations and using the skills you learn as emotional intelligence and situational awareness and and then i really had to learn what is my core like what is my what are my core values that i'm not willing to negotiate not negotiate compromise but compromise that's what i'm looking for what are my core values that uh, you know that i have to say if this happens i can't work here yeah. you know what i mean so i yeah. had to, that 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 level of position because there's nowhere to go but yeah. out right. like if you get to that point you know you don't you can't go back down in the organization you, you know when you're at a chief nursing officer or a c 
a sea level suite. If it's not working, you got to go somewhere else because it's very uncommon for people to step down yeah. in a, in a, in that scenario. So that you know, having to think about those things was like uncomfortable. You know, it was the first time I'd had to really think about what would I do? Like, what if yeah. this doesn't work? I never a million years. I thought I'd end my career there. Like, yeah. never in a million years would I have thought. I'm never. I'm not going to end my career there. I, mean, right. I was there for 28 years. I right. knew all the staff. I knew all the docs. I was well Came liked by all the system. By all everything I, I knew. You yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, no position like that. I liked by everyone. Right. You know what I mean. But right. so anyway, so that was okay. Yeah. Can you give a couple examples of things you were particularly proud of having accomplished while you were in that role? Yep. Um, I think the one thing I'm the most proud of was developing the first nursing strategic plan um, in the organization and that that started for me when I was a staff so when I was a a staff nurse Mm -hmm. you know I always felt like you know you see all these the mission and vision and the strategy and it never felt to me like I was connected to that and I thought someday when I get to be the CNO I'm going to connect the dots for nurses so that every nurse who works in this organization knows that how what he or she does is connected to the success of the organization. So in my mind, that was one of my bucket list things, one of the things that I said I'm going to do when I get there. So I got there. So now I'm like, okay, you know, here you go, because now you got to put your money where your mouth is. So I took the, we had just finished our strategic planning process as a senior leadership team and the board. So the timing was great. So I took that, you know, let's say there were four, four pillars, you know, four areas. And I assembled my team. I included some staff nurses, all my nurse managers and directors. And we had the senior, so every pillar had a senior leader sponsor. So I brought the senior leader sponsors in to share their vision for their pillar with my team so that they actually got exposure to the senior leader who owned that pillar. Um, And we spent a good amount of time talking about what this means, what does it look like? And then I cascaded down the strategic, so we had the organizational strategic plan, and then we had the nursing, overall nursing strategic plan that was based on the organization one. And then we took it down to the unit level. So every unit had a big poster on their unit that said, here's what we're going to do this year. And here's how it connects to the nursing strategic plan, which was right above it. And then here's the organization strategic plan. So that every nurse could say, by doing this on my unit, you know, by increasing our percentage of baccalaureate prepared nurses, by nurses in participating in shared governance committees by whatever it was here's how i'm contributing to the success of the organization yeah so that's probably the one thing that that's the one thing i'm the most proud of someday i I keep saying someday i have to write an article about that like i've got to publish that that sounds textbook yeah yeah Yeah. and then um i think the other thing was implementing a new role so implementing a new role in nursing nursing hadn't had a new role for 10, 15 years. So the American Colleges of Nursing, I won't get too specific, but the American Colleges of Nursing created a clinical nurse leader role. Okay. So, in, in, you know, in a nutshell, our patient care complexity had changed. We really hadn't changed the way we deliver care in a long time. So we really needed to have to think about how are we going to manage these complex patients that we're taking care of in a very short period of time. So this was the 
clinical nurse leader role and I advocated for, I educated the board, educated the my whole senior leadership team and successfully implemented two CNLs for every unit on my in the organization. Mm. So to take a concept and bring it to implementation is it was one of the things that I was the most proud of and without adding FTEs. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I thought that was pretty good. Nice. The CFO like that. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> so. appreciate that. So you came to Dartmouth-Hitchcock in December of 2015 to be the Director of Nursing Operations for the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, or the NCCC. Yep. Um, what made you decide to leave the Elliott after such a long and successful run? I mean, you were a member of the senior leadership team, like yep. you're talking about. Yep. It seemed like you were, you were at the top. Yep. So, so the, the decision for me to leave the Elliott was not mine. Um, so we, I had worked with a CEO for many years. I loved him. He loved me. We had a great relationship and he retired. Yeah. Is this Doug Dean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's just a, a, one of my mentors. He's okay. a terrific, terrific guy. Um, and taught me a lot. A lot of who I am is because of him. Okay. And so he retired and then we had a new CEO come in. Um, and it's not uncommon in the industry when a new CEO comes in to have leadership changes. Sure. Um, but I certainly didn't anticipate that I would be one of those leadership changes. I um, but I was. Okay. So I found myself, you know, unexpectedly, I call it, released back into the industry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, that's just, you know, the way I yeah. have to look at it. There you go. Um, so, you know what? Out of adverse, you know, out of adversity or situations you didn't anticipate finding yourself in, can come great things, yeah. you know, and I remember in those first couple of weeks after I had lots of staff reaching out to me, you sure. know, like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And I said, what you're going to do is to keep on doing what you're doing. You know, you're going to keep on taking care of patients. You're going to, that's what you do. That's what you need to keep doing. You know, and I would just say to them, the best thing possible that you want is a CNO who the CEO respects. That's going to be the best for nursing at the Elliott. And for whatever reason, that's not me. And so you're going to stay and you're going to keep doing what you do. And you're going to have a new nursing leader and she's going to, she or he is going to be respected by the CEO. And that's what, that's what you need. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. So I had to dig deep a little for yeah. that. that <laughs> sounds like, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, that didn't come off like right away, but I'm thinking I, I had, I was home thinking I have to know what to say because people were calling me and texting me and I had to have a way to help them through it. Yeah. That was important to me that they yeah. felt okay. Right. You know, that it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. It's good. I've had conversations with, with CEOs and other senior executives, and, and very often that is the, the conversation is, yeah, you know, we, I made changes coming yeah. in here because yeah. fit. It's, it's just fit. fit. It is. And I said, as I said earlier in the conversation, it's not confidence. Fit it's is fit. really important. It, it is really important. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I ended up in the place that I've wanted to work my whole career, but never could because I was raising kids in southern New Hampshire. Okay. So I ended up in a great place. Yeah. So here you are. Yeah. So, so okay. So you're actually not in the position you came to. Right. So let me, let's, let's yep. just, so you did come to be the director of nursing operations. Yep. Um, well, first of all, what is the Norris Cotton yep. Cancer Center? So the Norris Cotton Cancer Center is a, is a, an NCI, so the National Cancer Institute. So we are a comprehensive cancer center. There are only okay. 45 in the country. So we're one of 45 
nationally accredited cancer centers. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, and, and what that means is that we take care of, in, in an interdisciplinary way, we take care of patients with cancer diagnosis. So we have about I think there's like 25 now COGS, 25 clinical oncology groups so that are interdisciplinary. So they're nurses, doctors, researchers, research nurses, pathologists, um, all kinds, any discipline you can imagine kind of come together and kind of wrap their services around these populations of patients. So that's one hallmark of a cancer center is a real interdisciplinary um, approach that includes the medical care, but also includes supportive services like, you know, we have harp, you know, we have harp and we ha harps and we have massage therapy and we have, you know, sort of a lot of non-traditional modalities that we offer to all of our patients. So that's kind of one leg of the stool. And then there's the research leg. So we do a lot of clinical research here. So there's two kinds of research I've learned. There's um, clinical research where patients are on clinical trials and they may be getting experimental drugs as part of their being part of research protocol. And then there's the bench scientists, which do the, the, the work in the lab. Okay. So not patient focused, but they're doing really primary research Basic with research animals and yeah. yeah. So, so, wow. the, so, so research is a big piece of it. So research, interdisciplinary care and community. So we do a lot of um, work in, in at, you know in our community. So okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Prouty, which is sort of our big oh. bike ride in the summer. Okay. It's not even just a bike ride now, but the Prouty is, is our main fundraiser for, for cancer research. Okay. And it's a big thing here in the Upper Valley. So that's really what the Cancer Center is. So okay. it includes all the clinics it includes a couple of infusion centers so patients where patients will go once a week or twice a week or once a month for chemotherapy so uh -huh. they go in get their chemotherapy and go home um, and we have sites in manchester concord nashua and st johnsbury vermont and the inpatient unit so i also oversaw the inpatient oncology unit so it was like the whole service of cancer services all in all under me wow. for, for nursing wow how does someone come to be under the care of of the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. I mean, why? And I mean, obviously you have cancer, yeah. but but how does somebody come to be under the NCC versus say some other yep. oncology service? Yep. Somewhere so else? a couple of ways. One, you know, typically cancer is diagnosed or or questioned by a primary care physician. So primary care physician in the community would then say hit to a patient, you know, or if it's a Dartmouth, obviously if it's a Dartmouth physician, yeah. primary care physician, they're going to send our patients here. Okay. But sometimes, but we get a lot of referrals from other physicians in the community. So we might have someone in Vermont or in Southern New Hampshire who say, based on the reputation of the, of the North Cotton Cancer Center, it's a local, you won't have to go to Massachusetts because some patients don't want to make the trek. Mm -hmm. You know, again, it could depend on geography. Mm -hmm. It could depend on reputation. You know, we have a lot of really very well-respected oncologists that have national that are nationally respected, so uh, have national reputations. They published research, so that's another reason why somebody might say, "I'm going to send you to see this oncologist because he specializes in this kind of cancer care." And I've had patients go to him, and they've been really successful. Patients can self-refer based on our reputation and you know our research. So those are probably the, the okay. primary ways that sure. patients become a cancer center patient. So what was the transition like for you to come 
come up here. Yeah. So different organization, different role. Yeah. It was great. And yeah. I'll tell you why. So when I left the Elliot, you know, I was, it was a pretty big uh, ego blow. I was needed to be in a place where I could feel good again about myself and my career. Um, and the chief nursing officer here at the time, I had I was friends with because we were colleagues. Sure. Um, and she was just another incredible mentor to me. And so I reached out to her and said, you know, you, you know, like in the summer, I did take a year off. But in the summer, I said, okay, you know, I'm thinking about getting ready to enter the workforce. I'm starting to interview across, you know, I was looking at positions across the country, but, you know, I'd really like to come. Can we get together? You know, can we get together and talk about what I'd love to work up there with you? Anyway, so long story short, that's how I ended up up here. And and the thing that was the most healing for me was coming to an environment where I was welcomed. I was, it was like a big hug. Like, I hate to say that. I mean, I know that sounds really weird, but it was like a professional hug. So I came and I was welcomed and I was respected. And I was, people were like, oh my God, I can't believe you're coming to to work with us. We're so excited to have you here. And so I came into an environment that for me was healing. Like for me, it helped to heal me because I was, not healed you know that that transition is hard and i think we don't talk enough about stuff like that you know you don't got to be you know put your armor on and be brave and you know say i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine you know and um, someday i would love to i was actually talking to another person in my position who got let go from a cno position and we actually are actually talking about writing an you know writing a journal article together because we don't people don't talk about it right because you know nobody it's embarrassing, kind of. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so when I came here, I came into an environment where I was completely welcomed and respected and allowed to do my thing, you know, to lead. And and it's been terrific. It's yeah. been a great, great move for me. Yeah. Well, it... Um it certainly seems to have worked out for you because <laughs> you were recently promoted to be the director of outpatient nursing and clinical operations yeah. for Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Yep. And are you are you also still the nursing director of nursing operations for the Norris Cotton? Well, Cancer I Center am or? just on an interim basis, okay. so we're actually interviewing candidates over the next few weeks for okay. that position. Okay. So um, in the long run, that, that in the will. long run, they will they'll have a matrix reporting relationship to me. So I'll still be somewhat involved at the cancer center okay. from a nursing practice perspective. So they'll okay. still have a, a matrix reporting relationship to me. Okay. So that's cool. So what is the scope of of your new role as the director of outpatient nursing and clinical operations? Yep. So this is this is a nursing practice position. So operationally, like as far as budgets and FTEs go, I don't have responsibility for that the practice managers and practice directors do so this role is like the funnest part of a nursing leader's job without all the you know the operational headaches so now i get to really be involved in what should nursing practice look like in the ambulatory setting Um, what is the role of a nurse in the ambulatory setting how do i support nurses who work in, in ambulatory care Ambulatory care is really where the future is going, right? Because we're trying to shrink hospital days, move patients more to the outpatient side. So it's, in my opinion, it's sort of the the the, the new frontier for patient care. You know, yeah. that's where nurses are going to have a lot of opportunity to really impact patients' lives on the outpatient side. 
Um, so my scope, as far as geography goes, okay. I have all of the clinics here in Lebanon. And then I have um, all the clinics in Manchester, Concord, and Nashua. So those are the um, locations that I travel to. Okay. So I spend about three days a week here, three to four days a week here, one to two days a week in the southern region. Wow. Okay. And so it's great. I've gotten to meet a whole new group of, of nurses and doctors. And so, yeah, it's a pretty big scope. Yes, but that's I'm huge. Not, you know, I'm not afraid of that. And how does this? How does your current role fit into kind of the bigger nursing yep. structure within so the organization? So I, I know you've interviewed Karen Clements. Yeah. Um, so Karen is my boss. Right. So Karen is now the chief nursing officer, and then she has two directors: director of inpatient and a director of ambulatory. Okay. So I have a partner, Michelle. Who? So Michelle and I okay. report up through to Karen. Okay. And she's a great leader too. She's, yeah, yeah, she's a lot of fun. Yeah, she is. She, <laughs> yeah, she is. She's a great she's, person to she's work for. Good people. Yeah. Smart. Very driven. Smart. Yep. She's great. So let's talk a little bit about healthcare, maybe kind of yeah, in general. Sure. Um, there's a lot of going on in healthcare. We've got MACRA and MIPS and discussions about repealing Obamacare. <laughs> Um, or the yeah. ACA, depending on what party you're with. Uh, and there seems to be just ongoing pressure for organizations to merge and consolidate. Um, what do you think the major health policies on the horizon or are coming into effect now, how do they impact your day-to-day -day practice? How, or, or how will they likely impact your day-to-day -day Yeah, day that's practice? a great question. You know, there is so much uncertainty, especially yeah. with the change in presidential party in the White House. And, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about what that looks like or feels like. But even with even if that didn't happen, even if we stayed, you know, with the party that was in the White House before, I still think the pace of change in healthcare, regardless of the political landscape, is hard to keep up with. So, you know, we uh, we feel like you just kind of get your head around macro and MIPS, and now we have, you know, in six months, it's going to be something different. So the challenge is that healthcare organizations are not nimble. You know, we're not known for um, change, quick, you know, quick change, thinking on our feet. You know, we're not known for that. It's, it's, it's a, we're big, complex organizations, which makes it difficult to implement change. Some organizations are better at it than others. But that's one of the biggest challenges I see yeah. is, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time thinking about population health and, you know, starting and stopping and and where are we going to go? And I worry that we're going to get we're going to settle on what we're going to do and how we're going to do this. And then the rules are going to change again. So I think the challenge is figuring out how do you, how do you um, how do you become how do you stay nimble or how do you become nimble? And then right. how do you stay that way? Yeah. Um, and I don't have the answer for that. I yeah. wish I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges for healthcare is trying to figure out how, you know, how do we take this behemoth organization and align it so that we're doing the right thing? And we're living in a schizophrenic world. So we're living in half fee for service, right? So half of our work, we're getting paid by what we do. Right. So more procedures, more money. Right. But the other half of our world is is capped, you know, so, sort of capped payments. So we're going to give you this amount of money for this many patients and you spend it the way you want. If you spend too much, you you pay out of pocket. Right. If you spend don't spend as much, you get to keep it. So we're living in two worlds. So our 
our payment models are, and the, that's so you structure yourself based on how you know you're going to get paid. But it's hard because you're living. Sometimes we have competing priorities. Right. So those are so that's what I think is is a challenge for health systems is to try and figure that out. And we're not, you know, we're doing that same story. You know, we're in that we're in that place trying to figure out how do we do this and how do we do it and be financially solvent so we can take care of our patients, right? You know, they always say no margin, no mission, no mission, no margin. You have to have both, right? You know, so. So you mentioned pop health. You're on the outpatient side, so that's got to be a big yep. area you're engaged with. Tell, tell me a little bit about what kind of projects you're working on. Yep. So we're actually, um, I'm knee deep in this, I feel like. Um, we, for our community community um, practices in the southern region, have committed to, have signed up for the next generation, which is sort of the, the newer payment models. And so we're we're just right now going through the who are our patients? What do they look like? What is their risk? You know, how or what's their level of, of acuity? And really trying to figure out how we manage them as on the outpatient side. So, you know, how do we take nurses, for example? So for nursing, how do we elevate the role of nurses so that they can practice to the, t- I know this is a standard term, but practice the top of their license. So how do we get nurses not rooming patients and doing vital signs and doing those things that somebody else can do. Those are important things, but someone else can do them. And how do we transition so that nurses are managing complex patients, touching base with patients so that how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Do you need anything? So that when they need something, they'll come to the office instead of needing something and going to the emergency department, which is a higher cost obviously higher cost of care. So we're trying to figure out what does that look like on the ambulatory side? How, what does it look like to be efficient and in providing care at the right place at the right time? Um, yeah. And again, if you think about that in living in two different worlds, how difficult that can be. And we really tried to take the model of uh, being payer agnostic, right? So thinking like we just have to look at all of our patients as if they were managed, you know, population health, like we're managing their health. We have to stop thinking about fee-for-service versus captation. So so we're figuring that out still, and that's a big part of my work is representing nursing at that table. You mentioned practicing at the top of your license. And yeah. I, I, it made me jump back to a, a earlier part of our conversation where you were talking about the two roles, your elevator speech about the two roles of yeah, nurses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of them being being with the right. patients. Yeah. If you're going to kind of stratify the, the functions, are are you worried about losing the being with portion? So if you're going to yeah. only practice at the top of your license, I mean, I'm going to do medication management, I'm going to do all these things that I'm right. trained for, yeah. and I'm going to push off bringing you your food. Right, or, right, right. No, I get. I know where spending, you're going. You're not, you're not, so my concern, I guess my concern would be, you've heard a lot about, I've heard a lot about this from physicians. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like I don't get a chance to spend time with my patients. Right, I right. I run in the room, I make a diagnosis, right. I run back out. Um, yeah. Are you worried at all as I'm, you push toward that? I'm not because what? I I believe that we have created spaces for that to happen. So, for example, we're doing post-hospital discharge. So when, pa- when a patient leaves a hospital, there's evidence and research to demonstrate that if you if they're not supported appropriately in the first you know seven to fourteen days of being home from the hospital, they end up back in the hospital. 
So that's a perfect place for a nurse to reach out to the patient, whether they're doing it by the phone, whether they have the patient come into the office to, 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 you know, for like three or four days out, come in, let's, let's talk, let's see how you're doing. Let's check the list that your patients, that they gave you in the hospital. Let's make sure that it matches what we have in, you know, in our records. Are you able to fill all your prescriptions? Do you need anything? So I think it's just creating a different space for those interactions to happen. Um, And then we also have care coordinators. So nurses whose job it is to work with patients on on developing care plans. So we always think of a care plan as being in the the hospital thing. But now we're starting to think about how do we work with our patients and say, all right, you have you have congestive heart failure, so you have to manage your fluid intake. Now, when the uh, when you were a patient in the hospital, it's easy because we control what we give you. Yeah. But now that you're at home, how can I, as a nurse, help you do this at home? So that again, nurses are interacting with patients and saying, well, "What can you commit to? You know, what can you do? Can you, you know, quitting smoking is, you know, obviously a big concern, and some patients just say, "I can't quit." And so instead of just giving up on that patient, you say, okay, but could you cut down to a day? You know, and so working with a patient to identify goals and care plans and how do we keep moving towards a goal that that we collectively agree to. So I think that to your point, that that, that it just looks different, right? Yeah. That that time and presence with the patient looks different on the on the ambulatory side. Yeah. Um, nurses will come in, we're gonna have patients come in and do annual wellness visits. So Medicare pays for an annual wellness visit. Doesn't have to be with a physician. Physicians should be seeing the more complex patient. Have a nurse see a patient for an annual wellness visit. You know, here's your blood pressure. What are your meds? You know, how are you doing? Do you need anything? And then kind of connecting that patient to resources in the community. So I think it's just finding those new, new ways to do what we do. So it- I wanted to ask you how you've perceived nursing changing over the 30 plus years you've been in the field. One of the things you talked about earlier was you, you said you were proud of having brought on the clinical nurse leaders. Leader. Yeah, so yeah. One, of the, one of the kind of follow-up questions I had was the role of advanced practice nurses yep. seems to be a big change in the yes. time you've been, a pra- uh, yep. you've been in practice. Yep. So, those, so again, those are responses to what I think has changed certainly is the acuity of our patients. So patients are sicker, they're living longer, which is good, right? Those aren't living longer is not necessarily bad, but we have so Generally many speaking, it's right? <laughs> treatment modalities. We're keeping patients alive longer. Yeah. Um, so, so that's so that's number one, and they're they're staying in the hospital shorter lengths of time. Like now they're doing total joints as an outpatient. I mean, as an orthopedic nurse, I don't think I ever would have saw that happening. You know, that uh, that you did an outpatient, you did a total joint replacement and sent them home. It's so there's lots of examples of things like that. So it had and then so now we have a physician shortage, right, in addition to nursing shortages. But it's created this role for advanced practice nurses, which I think is fantastic. I'm a huge fan of advanced practice nurses um, and the role that they play in on our teams so that there's a role for the provider. You know, they absolutely we need physicians, but partnering with advanced practice nurses creates creates a role for advanced practice nurses to 
to be aut autonomous and independent practice, have an autonomous and independent practice, but working, you know, alongside a provider. So I think it creates a lot of space for advanced practice nurses, which is which is great. Can you give an example of of advanced a couple of advanced practice nurse types that you yep. see? Yep. So nurse, so nurse practitioner. Okay. That's probably the most common one. Sure. Like that's what most patients would think of as an advanced practice nurse. And then let's see, clinical nurse specialists. So nurses who work and kind of help manage populations of patients. A midwife is an advanced practice nurse. Nurse. So those are those are formally um, advanced practice nurse roles. Okay. If you could step back to UNH campus, just as you were about to graduate back there in, in the eighties. Yeah. Um, uh, Aside from you know, don't wear parachute pants and things right. like that. Uh, <laughs> what would you give? What advice would you give yourself about? What would you give? What advice would you give to your 1984 self as she's about to launch on her career? Um, that's a great question. I think I would tell myself that there are going to be a lot of changes coming, and just stay true to who you are. Stay true to those core values that are un not negotiable for you. Like, and don't let yourself be detracted from those, you know, don't let yourself be sidetracked from those and get ready for a wild ride, you know, that there's a lot, a lot has changed. Yeah. Well, let's transition and talk a bit about leadership. Sure. Uh, what would you say is your leadership philosophy? So I would say that I, I consider myself sort of an authentic leader, I guess, if you were, if I had to put, you know, some of the official leadership theories, I'd say either authentic or transformational leader. But I like to think of it sort of as I keep referring to my core values, like what are the things that are most important to me as a leader and as a coach and as a mentor to other leaders. Um, and one is, and we've talked a lot about it during this interview, is um, the importance of situational awareness and emotional intelligence the importance of relationships. So I cannot emphasize enough how important, in my career anyway, maintaining positive professional relationships are. That no matter how, you know, no matter who or what level in the organization someone is, it's always important that you're collegial and kind and caring and professional and human. And that I have found for me that has served me well. Yeah. in my career that mean that relationships are important and not from a self-serving way like some people will say you never know when you're going to need somebody that's yeah. not what i mean i mean just being kind and caring and fostering relationships that are collegial and professional are is so important like that's one advice i'd give to young leaders is to never never underestimate the importance of relationships Vulnerability is a big is is I believe is a very important leadership quality. Okay. That being willing to say I don't know or I you know I don't know but let me find out or being willing to say I'm not really sure I handled that well you know what could I have done differently, I think for me have served me well and I think they're very very important leadership traits, and it also demonstrates to your team that it's okay to ask for help. You know, if I'm if they see you role modeling that behavior, then they're likely to reach out for help when they need it. Because honestly, one of the things that frustrates me the most is when someone doesn't reach out for help. Like I would rather have someone ask me for help than not ask. Yeah. You know. So, but it, so I think being willing to be vulnerable as a leader, 
but that's not what they teach you, right? When you're in, you know, when you're in leadership school, they kind of teach you, you have to be strong and you have to be the tough one and, you know, put your armor on. I don't know if you've ever heard Brene Brown. I have. Oh, I love her. And I love her analogy about going into the arena, you know, that you stop and you put your armor on and into the arena you go. And she kind of challenges us to take the armor off and go into the arena and be willing to be vulnerable as you're doing the work that you need to do. Um, and so I'm a huge fan of her work. I love her. Um, but she taught me, you know, she didn't teach me. She validated for me the importance of humility and being willing to kind of open yourself up and say, what can I do differently? How can I, what can I do better? Yeah. And then, you know, just being um, passionate to me, that's a an essential quality of a leader is because that's what staff, they, they feed off of that. If they see that you're passionate and you're, and you're compassionate and you love what you do, it's contagious. People, people like that. They want their leaders to be positive and they want their leaders to be well-respected and they want their leaders to be, um, you know, they want their leaders to be liked by other people in the organization oh, and, and okay. that's yeah. important yeah. Yeah. um and then just being tena- being tenacious and persistent like i i don't know where my sign is somehow it got lost in my moves but i have a sign that says impossible just takes longer to happen <laughs> and i believe that i don't believe anything is impossible and that's how i that's how i roll you know that's how i i lead with um okay so we can't get to here but can we get to here? You know, can we? And and my friend, my partner in life also taught me, you never tell someone what you can't do. You always tell them what you can do. And and he owns own, he owned his own moving company when I first met him. So if a patient, I mean, if a customer would call and say, I, you know, I want to move on July 4th. Well, that's not going to happen. So, he, But instead of saying, I can't move you on July 4th, he'll say, I can move you on either July 3rd or July 5th. Which one would you like? Or he'll say, great news. I have availability on the 3rd or the 5th. And, and it isn't a game. It's really, you know, he just really believes, it taught me that lead with what you can do yeah. instead of what you can't do. So. so you've hit a little bit of this, but I want to ask you, what do you see are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? So you, you talked about vulnerability, authenticity, tenaciousness. Yeah. What else would you add to that um, list? I think that although those are important, I think you also have to have subject matter expertise. Okay. You know, that you can have all those things but not know what the heck you're doing, and that's not good either. So you kind of have, you have to balance that out with knowledge and expertise and knowledge of what you're doing, you know, whatever it is that you're leading. You know, I think it is important to be seen as a knowledgeable expert, even though you might not be, you know, you might not know everything, but you have to, you have to have, make a commitment to knowing what it is that you're, you're doing kind of thing. Oh, and the other thing is, I think it's important to always share the why, like always share with people why, what you're asking them to do. Um, And for, for the patient, you know, because we're talking about patient care and nursing, I always try and, and connect what I'm asking them to do with a patient. So I'll give you an example. So in the ER, every the, the first of every month, everybody hates the first of the month because you have to go through and you have to check all the code cards and nobody likes to do it. It's tedious. It's not fun. It's boring. 
you know, and, and sometimes you don't do it because you say, oh, I'm too busy. But I tried to help my staff understand why that's so important and connected that to either them personally or the patient. So I would say, imagine that this was your mother here and she was in cardiac arrest and the nurse went to open the code cart and the meds that you needed to give that patient were expired yeah. and they wouldn't work. So just imagine how you'd feel if that was your mother in that bed. And alternatively, imagine if you're at that bedside and you're intubating a patient with Dr. So-and-so, and I'd always pick the doctor who was the, the, the jerkiest doctor, and say, and say, if he asked you for something and you opened the cart and it wasn't in there, just imagine that you're the nurse standing there. Do you want to tell him that it's not in there? Because, you know, that's not going to go well. Right. Or for, or I'd try and say, imagine that if only 1% of patients get this complication. That doesn't seem bad, right? 99% of patients get the right care, 1% doesn't. That, you know, by all accounts, that would be, okay, pretty good average, right? But if 1% ends up being 12 patients, babies who are given to the wrong parent, or 1% of patients who got the wrong procedure or the wrong pacemaker or whatever. So I always try and connect, even though what I'm asking you to do seems like routine and mundane, how do I connect it to the why? So that, that's what I try and do. Can you give me an example of a difficult leadership lesson you might have learned the hard way? Yeah, so I would say my most difficult lessons were at the core, like once you peel the onion back, were based on the same thing, which was my failure to address performance in someone. So I have different examples, but the failure of a leader to address someone's performance will never end well, never end well. You know, we have an obligation as leaders to either, actually one of my former mentors told me, you're either managing people up or you're managing them out. That as a leader, that's your responsibility is to manage someone up or manage them out. And I think failing to act in either way is not good or failing to make a decision when you know somebody isn't the right fit, that you've worked with them and you just, you know, you just are unwilling or unable to cut the cord, you know, or to make the difficult decision. And it's really better off for everyone. And I say that now, you know, based on our earlier conversation, you know, seems like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth because I was the recipient of that. Sure. Um, but but I think those those were my most difficult leadership challenges were when I had decisions that I had to make that were really difficult and I knew they were the right thing to do and I didn't do it or I didn't do yeah. it in a timely Too enough much. manner. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so. that's one of the most common responses. It is, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's hard because for me, when I hire someone, I feel a commitment to their success. Yeah. But in one case, I wanted this person to be successful, I believe, more than they did. Okay. And so that doesn't end well for a kid. It has the potential to not end well for you because you're not managing appropriately. Yeah. Well, so speaking of hiring, what do you look for when you're hiring leaders and also when you're evaluating them? Yep. So I look for passion. I look for um, caring, compassion, you know, sort of all the things we've talked about earlier. I look for someone who I think is is tenacious, who's not, who's not going to give up, you know, when the going gets rough kind of thing. Those are qualities I look for before clinical or content expertise. Yeah. And if I happen to have both, that's great. Okay, you've worked in a number of different organizations here. You've, you've, um, uh, you have, you started down in Philly at, mm -hmm. at Einstein. You worked through a 
bunch of different organizations within yep. the Elliott. You're now here at, at Dartmouth. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about organizational culture. Yep. And what's why is it important? So, you know, as you know, I'm sure culture is what's allowed and what's not allowed. You know, in an organization, behavior from a behavior perspective. You know, what do we tolerate? What don't we tolerate? Kind of the ways of the world, like how do things work around here? Yeah. The unwritten ways things work around here. I also believe that culture is not, um, well, to, to create a culture the right way needs to be intentional. So from a senior leadership perspective, from a CEO on down, I think creating culture should be a, an intentional thing. Because if it's not intentional, then it just kind of happens. It just, everyone kind of does their own thing. So I've had the opportunity to work in cultures where it's a healthy culture, and I've had the opportunity to work when there wasn't a healthy culture. And sometimes that can be in the same organization at different times over an organization's lifespan. And I would say that sometimes you don't realize the culture until you've left an organization. And for me, culture means doing what you say and saying what you do. Culture means when you're in a healthy culture. Let me, let me yeah. clarify that. So a healthy culture means when you're in a meeting and you all make a decision that that's the decision that gets implemented. And an unhealthy culture is when you're in an organization and you have a meeting and everyone says this is what we're going to do. And then there's three or four meetings outside the meeting and the original decision gets changed. So that's what I, I personally would consider to be an unhealthy culture. Like I want to work in an organization where we do what we, we say what we mean and we mean what we say so that when we all agree to something that that's what we all agree to. Um, and so culture is really important, I believe, as, as a leader and culture can, can result in people not feeling like they're a good fit or yeah. somebody thinking you're not a good fit. And I think a lot of times culture plays a role in that because it's, it's hard to trust and develop trusting, honest, respectful relationships when you don't do what you say and say what you mean, you know, mean what you say and say what you mean. Does that right. make sense? It does. Um, so I think culture is really important and it's very different. It can be very different organization to organization. And it's not good. It's not bad. It is what it is. But yeah. I think it's important, especially as a leader, to ask those questions. What is the culture like here? Sometimes people will tell you things and then you'll learn, well, that's not what I see, you know. So, yeah. but I think it's an important question, especially for leaders thinking about joining an organization, yeah. is understanding that at least what, what, are, what, are the, what are my people who I'm going to be working with think the culture is like here? Because sometimes you might make a decision not to not to join that organization, depending on, again, going back to does that really fit within what I the kind of place I want to work in. So I think those are important. It's it's hard. It's not objective. It's very subjective, but it's still important conversations to have when you're thinking about either joining or being part of an organization or staying with an organization. So. You've talked about mentors a couple of times. I think you said Doug Dean was a mentor. You yep. said the CNO here yep. had been a mentor. Yep. What does a good mentor do? So, you know, I think a good mentor um, creates a safe place for a mentee to be able to talk through challenges or issues or concerns or potential for your further career growth. I think a good mentor 
creates succession plans, right? So creates, grows new, grows new leaders. That's probably a better way to put it. But a, a good mentor is committed to helping someone to be what they want to be. So to get where they want to go. And I think sometimes create, provides a different perspective that, that a young leader might not think of. You know, like I always tell people, don't think of just your space as a leader. You know, don't think you have to just be a leader in your department. So if you want to be a leader, let's look at, you know, we have a whole organization here. You know, let's think about maybe it's, you know, maybe you could consider this type of a position. This is a leadership position. So really helping someone see the possibility, you know, helping a a mentee see what's possible, you know, and just providing guidance and coaching and direction and sharing expertise, you know, sharing, removing obstacles or, or sharing your experience and saying, well, this is what, this is, this is what's worked for me, or this is what hasn't worked for me. So I, I think I love, you know, men, being a mentor. Okay. So uh, that was my next question is, do you mentor other executives, either nurses or other, yep. other people. So now? actually, Dartmouth has a formal mentoring pro. Okay. Nursing at Dartmouth has a formal mentoring program, and we did. They've done two sessions so far. I was involved in the second one in December, where it was kind of like a speed dating thing. <laughs> so what we did is they had like half and half. So half people who are willing to be mentors and half young leaders who were looking for mentors. And then the morning part of the day was, was around what is mentoring? What are the value? What are the benefits? What does it look like? So it was sort of the content about mentoring itself. And then in the afternoon, you did like a, a speed dating kind of thing. And then at the end of the day, they paired up mentor and mentee. And then we're in the middle of now our six month relationship, you know, where you you get to meet with your mentor over time or your mentee over time. And it's actually um, our nursing transformational leadership council. So this is, this is clinical nurses, staff nurses who put together this workshop and it's been fantastically successful. So that I think nice. they're planning their next one for the fall. Nice. Yeah. And so it's a six month relationship and then. Well, and, and a, it's a it, six months, right. It's a and, six month structured relationship. Okay. Um, and then, you know, uh, like I believe our, you know, that my mentee and I will maintain that. It's hard. You don't just end it. You know what I mean? Right. So, um, so yeah, it's, 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 and I thought it was kind of funny when I signed up for this conference, I thought it was a, just a conference on mentorship, like on mentoring. Oh. So I signed up for it. She thought it was like a lecture. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) so I was in, I don't know, in a meeting and someone's like, oh, I'm so excited you signed up to be a mentor. And I'm like, what did I do? (laughs) And she's like, yeah, you signed up to be a mentor for the conference. And I said, oh, okay. And then I'm like saying to myself, I got to look into this inside. I just said, oh, yes, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. And I go back to my office and I'm like, what did I sign up for? But it's, it was, it's been Terrific. Oh, very, nice. it's very uh, rewarding. Very nice. So we're sitting, at, we're sitting here in your office yeah. at, at your table, and on the table you have a couple of, of leadership books. Yeah, so one yeah. of my questions is, uh, if you were going to pick a book to recommend to early careers, in particular people who are interested in, in leadership, yep. what would you recommend? So I have two books, okay. and neither one of them are on my table oh, all right, here. All right. So the first one, good ones on the table. Though. I do, I know, <laughs> and I and I leave them out. So people can take them. So I have a whole bunch over there. So they take them and bring them back because I, I love leadership books. So 
one book one one of my books is is by Ben Zander okay. who is the who was a um, he used to be the conductor of the Boston Pops and so he's not a healthcare, not healthcare leader nope and his book is called the art of possibility and he just talks about thinking about what's possible you, you know and I'll tell you his story so this is the story that one of the stories he tells it's it's short is that so there's this executive um, that owns a shoe company, and he sends to, he asks two of his salesmen to go to Africa to sell shoes. So the two salesmen pack up their stuff, and off to Africa they go. So they get to Africa, and the first the first salesman calls his boss and says, "I just got here, and they don't wear shoes here, so I'm headed home." So he heads home on the plane, and the second one says, "Oh my God, you're not going to believe it." They don't wear shoes here. I'm going to be here for a long time. So he saw the possibility, right, of selling shoes to this whole country that doesn't wear shoes. And this guy was like, yeah, they don't wear shoes, so I'm out of here. He is, if you ever get a chance to see Ben Zander talk, he has a YouTube, he has a YouTube video. Oh, okay. So I first learned about him when I was dating my boyfriend. And he sent this to me and said, will you give up 20 minutes of your life to listen to this video? And I want us to talk about it. So anyway, so he's just all about creating a possibility. He talks about a conductor. A conductor doesn't make a sound, right? A conductor does not make a sound, but he gets his work done through others, you know, through leading his team. So anyway, so he, that's one of my books. And my second one is by Liz Wiseman, Multipliers. You must have heard about that book. I don't think I have heard of that. So um I have that book, but she, um, she talks about there are two people in the kinds of people, multipliers. So a multiplier makes everyone around them better. So a multiplier is someone who creates energy and passion and positivity around them. And they promote their team versus themselves, you know, so they make everyone around them better. So I can think of a few people in my career who, they, just by virtue of being around them, you feel more accomplished and you feel better and you feel good about what you do. So again, not healthcare related, but really important to me as a leader. So multipliers and the art of possibility. So those are the two books that I would say um, are really important. And I actually met Ben Zander in person. Yeah. Um, and he is just a fantastic person. So if you ever get a chance to meet him, he's he has shining eyes. He's the one that talks about shining eyes and what shining eyes mean. It means passion and energy and so. So in conclusion, what advice would you give to early careerists who are embarking on a career in healthcare management? So either maybe a, a young nurse who's decided she, he or she wants to become a supervisor. Yep. Or, you know, I teach a, 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 a mostly undergrads who are interested in healthcare administration. What advice would you give them going out? Yeah, so I would say one piece of advice I would give is to find something that you're passionate about. Find something that adds value and makes your life better. Because I, I believe that we spend a lot of time away from people that we love at work, right? So you, like if I'm going to leave my kids or my family, I want to be somewhere where I love what I do. So it's, it's, that's just number one. I told my kids that it doesn't matter what you choose to do for your career, find something you're passionate about and do it so it doesn't feel like work. So that's number one. I would say don't underestimate the value and importance of relationships. So we've talked about that a little bit earlier. Don't pass up opportunities to become involved and, and be, be 
open to becoming involved in things that may not be within your, like what you envision. So don't ever pass up an opportunity if someone says, hey, would you like to work on this project with me? If you can, and it, it provides you exposure to other people in your organization, whether they're in leadership positions or not, take advantage of that. That's a, a really good way to network and to be seen and to be respected and to be, you know, valued as someone who's willing to kind of roll their sleeves up and get involved in things. And then I would say, don't be afraid to, to boast a little bit about what you've done. You know, I think sometimes we um, don't always toot our own horn. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not coming across as being arrogant and boastful. But there is nothing wrong with kind of promoting yourself a little and saying, you know, hey, I, I just want you to know I've been involved. I've been working, you know, let's say you're talking to your boss. Hey, I want you to know that I'm working with so-and-so in this department on this project. You know, just it's okay. Or tell your boss's boss what you're doing. I guess those would be my, yeah. my, my big ones. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has yeah. been really great. Yes, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking, I'm sure. I hope that I've been able to add something of value to to your class and to future leaders. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.